The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Okay, let's start. We got a lot, a lot of ground to cover. So this is actually a continuation of last week's class, or two weeks ago. But um, this is the non-PC part of of the class. But I'm gonna, I'll just give a brief summary of what we were discussing in our last session. Excuse me. Was the question of um, of whistleblowing, meaning if you see something, whether it be at work, um, colleague at work, your company. Um, or just your neighbor doing something that's a violation of the law, what are your obligations, um, halachic obligations? Legally, by the way, you have zero obligations. Um, as in all West, uh, Western law, you have no obligations to whistleblower, even if you see fraud going on, unless in certain cases as a professional, let's say as an attorney, you might have an obligation to report. Um, specifically when it comes, of course, to abuse, to child abuse, sexual abuse, cases like that, as an, as an attorney, as a physician, or maybe as a rabbi, but I don't think so, um, you have an obligation to report. Um, but if you, even if you are a, if you, I was like on my drink, uh, as in Western law, if you, let's say, know your neighbor is abusing their kids, I believe, and um, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you don't. You have no obligation to report, which is a very scary thing. Unless you're a mandated you know, reporter. Right, unless you're a mandated reporter, um, you have no obligation. If you know someone's abusing their kids, if a teacher, even if a teacher is sexually abusing, molesting kids, you have no obligation to report legally. Of course, according to halacha, that's very different. Halacha, according to halacha, you have an obligation to report. You know what? I forgot to put the. Um, so, uh, so it's a fascinating, uh, large contrast, very big contrast between Jewish law and, and Western law, which is that in Western law, you have an obligation to, how are you, sir? This is, the, this is the boss. Is it coming? It's coming. It says it's coming. Very particular. <laughs> 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 he pays the rent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, in Western law, you have no obligation to report, zero obligation. In halacha, there's, as we discussed many times here in the past, there's an obligation to rescue. So when it comes to, let's say, saving a life, as scenarios we discussed in the last class, such as uh, the O-rings on the Challenger that blew up, company knew there was a danger when the when the when it went below a certain temperature the rings weren't working properly so if you're working in that company you could have saved uh, besides the billions of dollars obviously the lives of the astronauts so there's no uh, question in that situation Allah would be obligated to say something save the life of something even at the risk we said of maybe even losing your job and that was the question we discussed how much risk do you have to take to report something so let's say I know if I report I'm going to lose my job is that is still still obligatory or not? So when it comes to saving a life, um, you you have to risk a lot. Um, when it comes to let's say a monetary situation, where it's just a question of let's say there's fraud going on in the company, Enron situation. So there's fraud happening. What am I obligated to report? So you're not a, if you're going to lose money. Let's say if you're going to lose your job, you said there's always a cap, a fifth of your net worth. So if you're going to lose your job by reporting it by whistleblowing, so then technically, halachically, again, legally, there's never an obligation. 
but halachically there's an obligation but only if, if you're not going to lose more than a fifth of your net worth instead which most cases most people's jobs we consider a fifth of their net worth because that's their whole future income so you probably would not be obligated to report if you're going to lose your job it's just a monetary loss and the reason is just logical because um, obviously I don't have to risk my money to save your money even though there's an obligation to help to save my neighbor's money Okay, so if I see someone break into my neighbor's home, I have to call 911 if I know I can prevent a robbery and there's no risk to myself. The question becomes, but let's say I'm going to lose money by saving someone else's money. Am I still obligated to do it? So that, obviously, there's no obligation. Why should well, your money is not better than mine? So if by, by rescuing your money, I'm going to end up losing my money, so clearly I have no obligation. I'm saying it's not so logical. Yeah, I just don't get that. Yeah, what? Perspective. You know you're knowingly harming someone else. Oh, am I harming? I'm not doing anything well, wrong. No, you're I'm just being passive and not... If you're part of a company that you, you're aware is doing something fraudulent, you say, well, I could turn them in or lose my income. I'd lose my job. Somehow, if it's fraudulent, affecting someone else. Yeah, so now if you're involved in fraud, that's, that's stealing. We're not talking about you're involved. You're no, just, you're uh, let's say, company, a guy yeah. in the mailroom. You're, 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 you're aware of it or not? Yes, yeah, so if you're aware of it, that doesn't make you complicit. Normally, you'd have an obligation to rescue. You're still part of the machine, whether you're a mail guy or the CEO, effectively. Yeah, but I'm saying the you're point is, I'm not committing any fraud. The fact that I'm aware of it, first of all, legally, I have no obligation, that's for sure. One second. And halakhically, what we're saying is, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to save, let's say they're frauding, let's say Medicare fraud. So they're frauding the government. So why should I lose money to save someone else? That doesn't make any sense. Save someone else's life, you have to shell out money. Why should I, why do I, I, the whole thing is, I have an obligation that you shouldn't lose money, to make sure you don't lose money. But not at the expense of, if, if I'm going to lose money, so what? Just because your numbers are higher, let's say it's millions of dollars of fraud, and I'm going to lose thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that doesn't make, then there's no longer an obligation when we're saying logic. I think that makes a lot of sense. You want to say you're still an idiot, you, you, you should help, should uh, be, uh, you know, a patriot and help your country and save the government? Maybe yes, but that, Again, it's, the question is, is it obligatory? Legally, there's never an obligation in America. So you want to be a nice guy, you want to you know, risk your family and your income, that's, yeah, it's maybe you're not even sure you're allowed. To. I mean, because yeah. you're putting your whole family in peril to, for, to, for what? To save someone else's money? That not sure you, you have an obligation. Surely you have no obligation. We're saying is, the question is, I, mean, I don't even know if you should do that. You know, you're very patriotic, but you know, it doesn't, I mean, you should put your family at risk. You can be stuck without a job. Listen, if you know, easily get another job. That's something else. But if you can, what was you? How do you differentiate? Or is there a qualification to what you just said about the 20%? Yeah. <laughs> if I'm going to be a whistleblower in my company, right? And I, right, and then I can get fired. Okay, that's. I understand that. Don't stick your neck out for financial fraud like that. But if I, but if I, what if? We didn't say don't stick your neck out. Don't well, lose more than twenty percent of your net worth. Right. If I'm gonna lose my uh, job because yeah. I just, all right, in this case. But what if I'm not gonna lose my job particularly? I'm not gonna get fired. But my whistleblowing will cause the whole company to go out of business. Just everybody's gonna lose their job, including myself. Is that different than? directly being fired yourself. Well, it's even worse. I'm saying when you lose the You know, again, if the, the issue is you have to look at... The, there's a concept in, in Allah, which I think... Brian, this is also addressing your point. There's a concept in Jewish law called Chayecha Kodman. Your life takes precedence, even over someone else's life. Yeah. 
Right, so I don't have to risk my life, even in rescue, someone's drowning by you. I don't know how to swim, I shouldn't jump in because I don't risk my life to save someone else. Okay, okay one second. So now the same thing applies monetarily. You see, your money doesn't come before mine. mine I, my life as an individual takes precedence always over your life. In, li- in my life and also monetarily. So if it's a question of me doing something which is going to risk losing my money, my money, to save your money, <laughs> then there's no obligation. But you're at a better spot to know that someone's being defrauded. Someone outside of the company, how are they supposed to know that the company is defrauding? So I think you have an obligation as someone right. who's part of it to say something's wrong. Yeah, but again, not do I, how much do I have to give up for that obligation? I do have an obligation. But the question is, how much do I have to give up and how much do I have to risk for that obligation? Right? Do you, should I risk my life? Let's say I know that this is a mafia-owned company and they're going to... You know, you know, kill me or take, kidnap my son if I do. Obviously, I have no obligation at that point, right? So let's say what we're saying is monetarily also. If you're going to lose everything you own by reporting it, so you have no obligation. Okay. So vice versa, if it's a situation where you have these government programs where if you whistleblow, you get a cut of the fraud, are you obligated to say that? Because now you're going to yeah. change your 20% plus. Yes, yeah, so in that case where there's no risk to you and your benefit, then you're obligated. Even if you, you have, even if, even if it's neutral, risk, yeah, no, you're always obligated to save someone else's okay. money. I don't know about the government. That's an interesting question. But I don't know the answer to that. Meaning, yeah. You're obligated to save another individual's money. Right. Government, I don't know if they're, how we view the government. They're really, it's an entity. It's not an individual. Although you could say it's the taxpayer's money, and uh, you know, you can make that argument. But, I, but yeah. I haven't seen that, at least in Allah, you know, how, how do we view government entity? But as far as saving someone else's money, you have an obligation to, to rescue someone else's money, if you can. Even if you're not, you have no gain, as long as there's no loss. 20% loss. You're, you're obligated, you're right. obligated as long as there's no 20%. Well, even, well, for money, it's even less. Same like we're saying, money, I don't have to lose any money to save someone else's money. Do you know the reasoning why 20%? Well, it comes from the laws of charity where it says you're not supposed to give even to charity of more than a fifth of your net worth. The reason there is very logical because the whole point of charity is to help someone else. If by giving the charity you're going to put yourself in a situation where you're going to have to come on to uh, you know, charity so then defeating the purpose of charity. So that's where it comes from. So I don't know how exactly it's logically applied to here. You have that sure. a lot with donors here, see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Many times people give me, uh, <laughs> 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 give me everything they want. Okay, so and we discussed the parameters of disclosure, but I, we need to get into the next part, which is a very non-PC issue. And we started discussing last week, a very emotional issue for some. Thank God David's not here yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the issue becomes like this. There's, there's a halachic, um, another halachic issue, fascinating sociological topic, really, um, which is very relevant to this, which was historically, there's always been a major, a major problem throughout Jewish history where you had Jews informing on other Jews. As we know, we're always our worst enemy. We had Jews informing on, on other Jews um, too, and, and historically, as we know, we lived in very un, uh, unjust places. Not such just governments. We didn't live in a great country as we do today. In the United States of America, we lived um, throughout the ages, starting with, since it's Passover, I mentioned Egypt. Even in Egypt, and um, as we know, there was what we call today the term is kapos, but Jewish taskmasters, masters who the Egyptians appointed over the other Jews. It was always a psychological tactic that you have Jews or in any uh, type of slavery, you put 
this, their own people are in charge of them. So they have to, you know, and these, and you get them to do the cruel stuff. So you always had an issue with that, starting with Moshe and Moses, and that uh, when he hit, he slew the Egyptian and the other, the other two, uh, there were two Jews who saw the murder when he slew an Egyptian taskmaster, and they went and informed. Um, the government, that's why Moses had to run away. There's the whole story of the burning bush, right? So, so that was the be- beginning of the end, so to speak. Jewish history, where you, throughout history, you had people, Jews, informing on other Jews, and in those cases, it wasn't, we're not talking about informing to a, a just government. So, in the times of the Talmud, it got so bad um, that they actually instituted laws, halachic laws, against informing on a fellow Jew, known as the law of Mesira. Mesira literally, the word means um, giving over or informing. Um, and they and we'll see very strict laws against it. We can yeah. kind of give us a context of when, when it got so bad. What does that mean? It got so bad. Well, for, so I put that like the Roman Empire. This was during the times of the Talmud when the Roman Empire was in charge of, of Israel at the time. Took over and after, as we know, they invaded Second Temple period, I believe. So you had Jews who were not happy with the establishment who would go to Rome. That's because the whole story of Tishabov. It says the whole destruction of the Second Temple took place. Because a Jew went to Rome, he was pissed off at the rabbis, as usual, didn't like the rabbi's sermon, and he went to Rome, and, uh, and he, what he did was he told the Roman emperor, send, you want to see how the Jews don't support Rome, send a, a uh, sacrifice to the Jewish temple and see if they accept it. So they sent him with the sacrifice, the Caesar, uh, Caesar sent him with the sacrifice, and the guy on the way, by the way, the law is, you, ha- you accept, we accept sacrifices in the temple from all all creeds and races, we don't discriminate, you don't have to be Jewish to bring a sacrifice. What the guy did was on the way back to the temple, he put it, he cut the upper lip of the animal, which invalidates it. There was a whole discussion, should they take it or not, as the Caesar's sacrifice, they ended up not taking it. And because of that, the message got back to Rome that the Jews are rebelling, and the whole uh, temple was destroyed. So there was, a, there was a lot of, I mean, that literally the whole exile of the Jewish nation from Israel at the time came about because of an informer, a Jewish informer. So actually, by the way, there's, as we know, the Shmon Esrei, the Amidah, has 18 blessings. It's called Shmon Esrei, 18. There's actually, if you count up the blessings, there's 19 blessings. It was so bad at the time, they added in. There's a, the 19th blessing was added in a later point. Um, originally, the original uh, liturgy that we have in prayer was in the first, between the first and second temple prayer. The Anshe Knesset Agdol, the man of the great assembly. A 19th blessing was added in, known as Valam al Literally, if you look at it, some say it's referring to Jesus, some say it's, uh, Christians at the time, but the simple translation is referring to informants. It says, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it says, uh, you shall, God shall uh, rescue us from the informers. And it's referring to Jewish informers. Um, so, uh, I'll read, let me see if I can pull up my sitter app on the phone here. Yeah, but those people were heretics. Um, yeah, I'll read it to you. No, the word Vilam al means informants. Informants. Informants, yeah. Um, let me see if I can get it here. Shmonas, thank God for Fs. So I don't have an English sitter here, but in the Hebrew sitter, translated, it says like this, Vilam al the informants shall have no hope. Then it says, V'chal haminim, all the heretics, Kiregi um, shall be destroyed in an instant. So the second, it includes informants and heretics. Probably referring to the same, usually probably the same person. Um, and then it says, the enemies of your nation, Meheri Karesu, shall be um, speedily destroyed. Um, okay, so, so, but this was, it was specifically, this blessing was invented. Again, some say uh, 
it was for the sake of Christianity started at the time I was referring to but there were many Jews who became Christians at the time who were informers also informing to the government that was by the way the whole thing with Jews and being called Christ killers that was all came about also from Jewish informers so there's a lot of history here okay, and I put down if you look at number 6 here if you look at number starting beginning here um, so it says history. Jews have generally lived situations where government was the government was unjust or unjust towards Jews or bandits for the basis of government. Telling the abusive government that a Jew had money, that a Jew had broken the law was a dangerous act. Indeed, this kind of clearly, readily, and directly caused people to have their money taken, themselves beaten or tortured, and sometimes simply murdered. So by being an informant, it was so bad when you have an unjust government. So the issue was people could be killed. The money surely could be taken. Talmudic sages had no choice but to enact rabbinic decrees prohibiting such informant. Okay, so now part of that decree, just to show you how bad it was, if you look at the next paragraph, this is from the early authorities period. So they, they called someone who is known as, an, known as a known informer. That means this person used to go to the government and inform. And he says, I'm, I'm going to continue to do this. You warn him. And he says, I'm going to continue to do this. Says the Talmud. They have, they, we put them in the category known as a rodif. It means that they're literally considered they're pursuing someone's life because since by informing to the government this person's life is in danger, the person they're going to inform on, therefore you have every right to go and kill them without due process. Just like if someone's chasing someone down the street with a gun. So well, one of the things they say, the brothers, well, one of the things discussed, they had a right to kill him because he was informing to their father. But that's getting off the topic. But the point is, so the the... The Talmud gave that person, the informer, in Hebrew the word is Moser, they put him in the category of what's called a rodef. That means he's a, considered a pursuer because he's now endangering the community's life. Therefore, you have a right to go and kill him. Okay, even without due process. Obviously, there has to, has to have been warned. There, there's, there is some process, but it means you don't have to literally take him in front of a court in order to process him. There's many stories throughout our history where people uh, were killed because they were known as Moser. As a matter of fact, there was a story I read from the Ramah, who was one of the amendments to the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, he writes how um, there was, uh, uh, this guy went missing, and his wife, it's always an issue in the Jewish community, someone's husband's missing, the wife can't get remarried, because we don't know if the husband's alive, then they're still married, halakhically, she doesn't have a get, what do you do? So it's known as a aguna, she's literally called a chained woman, and she's in this limbo position, because she can't remarry, until we know the status of her husband. So there was a rule, this case came before the Ramah, this is in Krakow, 1600s, uh, and the Ramah, it's, it's, he writes it in his response, and he says, he ruled that she's okay to get married because he was in the mikvah when they didn't let this guy come out of the water, so to speak, because he was a moser, he was an informer, he was her husband, and they basically went under in the mikvah, and they didn't let him out. <laughs> okay, like so... No, you just don't let him come up. <laughs> so the, the point is, uh, <laughs> there's no blood, right? It's clean. <laughs> clean, uh, yeah. So the rush here, so the point is this, uh, unfortunately, and it's a very sad thing, but unfortunately this has taken place throughout history. So so um, if you look at the bottom paragraph, this is the rush just to show you how serious it was, how he defines it. The rush was known as Rabbeinu Asher, he was a Risha, an early authority. He lived in the 1200s. He says, one who runs to inform so that Jewish money is given to a bandit is analogized by the rabbis to one who is running after a person to kill him. This is seen from the verse in Isaiah, your children lie in a swoon at the corner of every street like an antelope caught in a net. Just like when an antelope is caught in a net, 
Oh, you see? Ooh. Still has. Are you going to eat? I might as well. I got any potato salad left. I'm sorry, I'm running late. It's a permit office. There you go. You're going to have to share with your daughter. She doesn't share well. I don't. Oh, you're not. I'm actually having that. David. Thank you. So sorry. So, um, so he says like this. He says, your children lie in a swoon at the corner of every street like an antelope caught in a net. Just like when an antelope is caught in a net, the hunter has no mercy towards it. So too, the money of a Jew, once it falls to the hands of bandits, the bandits have no mercy on the Jew. They take some money today, and tomorrow all of it. And in the end, they capture and kill him, since perhaps he has more money. Thus an informer is like a pursuer to kill someone, and the victim may be saved at the cost of the life of the pursuit. So just like when someone's chasing someone with a gun, you have every right to kill the pursuer, says the Rush, and this is codified in the Code of Jewish Law, in the Shulchan Aruch, that so too, a, an informer has a right to be killed, because the assumption is, again, if you, you have to, it has to be clear that he's an informer, because the assumption is he is going to, it's eventually, a person's life is in danger. Okay? Rabbi. Yes. When is money more important than life? Never. Well, that's what this is saying. God forbid, we're not. That's what he's saying. He's saying. So what are we looking about? He it? says. Read it. One who runs to inform to the Jewish money is given to yeah. a bandit. You can go out. No, listen. He says they take some money. Read. You finish the paragraph. Take some money today and tomorrow over it. In the end, they capture and kill him, since perhaps he has more money. So when you deal with an unjust. Um, either bandits or, or government such as Roman Empire or whoever it is, you know, um, Nigeria today, okay, or Louisiana, wherever, whatever you're talking about. Um, so, so whatever the, if it's an unjust system, so there's no end. People will do anything for money. So therefore the assumption is, meaning someone, at the end the guy might lose his life. So if someone's going to inform, even though you're right, at this point it's only for money. The assumption is it can lead to, to this person's loss of life at the end. Which you see has, has happened, if you know so if anything about on, um, what's going on even in the world today. I mean, this, there was a guy recently I don't know if was in the news two years ago, this Orthodox guy in, in uh, South America, he did a rice contract, you read this story? Um, and there was an actor who got him free. Unbelievable story. The guy was literally tortured in jail. It's like one of these... Uh, um, I mean, a crazy story. The guy spent four years. There was the government wanted to take over his country. He had millions of dollars of contracts with rice farmers and in maybe some South American countries. Guatemala. No, where they grow the quinoa? Where the quinoa come from? Quinoa comes from Peru. I'm not under, Peru. Uh, Rabbi, I don't no. think I'm understanding. So one second, let me explain. So the point is that this guy basically they took, they wanted his money, so they they. They charged him for some little charge, yeah. put him in prison. They took away all his contracts, millions of dollars. I mean, this guy, an American guy, and he ended up, he almost died in prison. And he came out, he was psychologically tortured. I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have gotten out. The American government got involved, Obama. I mean, it was an unbelievable story. The point is, when you're dealing with an unjust government, they'll, they'll do anything they can to get money, or not, or bandits. Chicago. So what? Chicago. Chicago? <laughs> That's not good. That's not good. Not today. Um, okay, so 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 what? So now, what's your question? Assuming, Assuming it can lead to death, so of course I, you don't kill someone for money, never. But I the assumption money, is, I extort money, and I tell, let's say, I tell Scott, and Scott gets money from the other Scott. Um, Milton, and does that mean I have the right to kill somebody? 
No. Well, what what, no. We're saying again, if specifically informing to it when you have an unjust government or justice system. That's what we're talking about specifically. Or bad war where you deal with the mafia. You're right. One who runs to inform so that Jewish money is given to a bandit. Bandit. Kill that so, right. A bandit or an unjust government. That's what we're saying. We're saying money is more important than No, I no. think it's no. like if you're extorting money from Scott and then the other Scott, you tell the other Scott. Yeah. And then the, the second Scott, if he were to inform Scott, the first Scott, that you were taking money from him, then you could then you could kill him because because why? Because because him telling the other Scott that you're extorting money is going to make that Scott kill you. Then you could kill him. Let's talk mafia, right? That's something that we could easily easier understand than unjust government. So, so let's say someone tells the mafia where your money is. You owe the mafia money. Okay, you're paying them, and they say, by the way. This guy has a stash in this in this place, and he's the, only, he's the only one with the code. Okay. Okay. You understand in that case that the per, that they're going to kill you to get that money out of you. Maybe. It's a good chance. Good chance. Okay. So therefore, but we're saying the person. Yes, that's what this is saying. Specifically, well, we're going to talk about that. How does it work in, in governments such as today? But the point is, historically, this was a big problem. I, my, I have a case. I think I, just, I don't know if I said it here a few weeks ago. I said it somewhere. Um, where my, my father was one of 11 uh, survivors of the Holocaust. 11 siblings, sorry. He's the only survivor out of 11 siblings. One of his siblings and survived the whole Holocaust. What happened was when he came, he, after six months after the war, he went through the camps and everything, he came back to Poland. He had hidden money um, in, you know, in his backyard or whatever it was. He had buried you know, all the, you know, their silver, whatever it was. Yeah. He came back after the war, six months after the war <coughs> ended, and his neighbors killed him. Because someone told him about where the stuff is, where the stash was, and they knew when he came back that he's going to want back his stuff. So they killed him six months after the war. So, you, so money, yes. Someone, it's all about money. Someone informs you, informs on money. This guy's now the endangered. He, he was killed because of money. So, so he could have killed the informer. He could have per- killed the person who was about to tell your neighbor, his neighbor. Only before the, the, the informer informs. Because once he informs, it's one of, just like any road death. Once so, when someone's pursuing someone with a gun, you can only kill the person, the pursuer, before he shoots him. Once he shoots the guy, then you can't kill him. Now you have to go through due process. Because yeah, right. he's just like any other murderer. So if there's the point an is to prevent the murder, To prevent right. the murder, you're allowed to kill someone, even without due process. So it's the same thing. What we're saying is to prevent <laughs> an informer from informing in a, in a, in a system like that, you can, you can kill the informer prior to informing. Okay, but once he informed, that's it. Unless you know he's going to do it again. Okay, so so the issue now becomes. So that's the case. Now the question is, obviously we we live in a great country as the United States of America. We might not be happy with our government or with the IRS, whatever it is. The question becomes, still that the, we have, quote unquote, a just government. Okay, <coughs> not everyone would agree with that, but I think nine, uh, most people would agree with that. Maybe Texas, or more people don't. Think, but I'm saying the point is right. We have a just government. So, so how does how does this law apply? This law was codified, Code of Jewish Law. An informer, you're not allowed to inform on a fellow Jew to the government. So, how does that work when you're living in a just society? And this was only relevant, unfortunately, up until recently. Most in the past, um, uh, many of the governments, including right, obviously in Soviet Russia, places like that. If you and people, there were, are many stories. You did inform on a Jew. You, you, you probably did have the, the category of an informer and living in the communism or something like that. 
so we, how does it apply? And also, if you live, in, let's say, in the Middle East, in the Arab countries, probably also not the, not the most just systems. So clearly, that halacha would technically still still apply. But how does it work when you're living in a country where you have a just system of justice, you have a just government? Does this even apply at all? How does it work? Okay, so this is something that's discussed extensively in um, various responses. So I found no less than, actually found five opinions. I only put down four opinions on the sheet here. Okay, so, so that's the question. Informing um, people when government is committed to procedural justice. So how does that work? Okay. Um, so, again, this is very relevant. Um, in our country, you're going to find cases where you're you're working in a company, the company might be, the owner of the company is Jewish, you're, he's defrauding the government or he's defrauding his client, whatever the case is, do you, are, are you allowed to report him to the government? Why is my, you know? You lose 20% of your earnings. <laughs> no, that's a different issue. That's, that's, that's a separate question. That's even when you have, that's even when you're allowed to inform. We're talking about, let's say, within a Jewish society, okay, or whatever the case is. We're talking about now, assuming you're not, you don't have any other way out. Question is, am I allowed to inform when I should be informing, save someone else's money? You said we have an obligation to rescue someone else's money, but the question is, we have a law in the book saying you, as if you can't inform on your fellow Jews. Why does that work? Okay, so, so the first, um, the, and probably the simplest answer, is of course this is no longer applicable when you have a just government. Why? And um, this is, interestingly enough, written in the um, late 1800s, by someone known as the Orach HaShulchan. He sort of has an abridged version of the Code of Jewish Law. And in it, when he quotes these laws about informing, that's prohibited to inform, um, so he says here like this, he says, as is widely known, in times of old, in places far away, no person had any assurance in the safety of his life or money because of the pirates and bandits. Even they took upon themselves the form of government. Meaning basically the government was bandits. Government was a group of bandits. I mean, even you know, we're talking... 1600s, 1700s Poland, I mean, there was no central government. The way we work is there was landowners. They were called, uh, I don't know, it's a Polish word, a Yiddish word, known as the parrots. Are you familiar with that word? Parrots. They would basically own all the real estate in the, in, the, in the area, sort of provinces. And they basically ran, they made the rules, they decided how much taxes to pay. And they would, of course, they weren't so friendly to the Jews. Jews weren't allowed to own land even. So they would basically... With that exception, it was a great system. I'm all in favor of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, so it was basically these real estate barons who ran the province, sort of like the governor of the province. Um, the more real estate you own, you basically own. You owned all the because everyone had to, had to rely on you. And there was obviously a lot of uh, prosecution, persecution of Jews. Um, they would specifically put the Jew tax, what it was called, higher taxes on Jews, etc. So in those situations, so even, I mean, this wasn't so long ago, talking 1700s, Poland, uh, white Russia. Ukraine. So, so he says, but it's interesting is how he puts it here, and I'm not sure many Jewish texts were censored, especially in those places, throughout the ages, the, this, or even self-censored because of the concern of these governments. So I'm not sure when he's writing this if, if he really means what he says, but let's read what he says. He says, as widely known, in times of old, places away, no person had any insurance, the safety of his life or money, because of the pirates and bandits, he took upon themselves the form of government. It is known that this is true nowadays in some places in Africa where the government itself is grounded in theft and robbery. So this is again, um, in uh, late 1800s, mid-1800s, late 1800s. 
Uh, so he's specifically referring to Africa, where the government itself is grounded in theft and robbery. So, which, by the way, I, I think even today, not to pick on Africa, but uh, I was involved two years back in a case of what's that law called? You know, anti-bribery. Anti-corruption. Yeah, anti-corruption. What's it? Anti-bribery. There's a there's a word for it, like a. <laughs> anyway, whatever whatever that, that act is, the anti-corruption act, where basically it was passed because people, uh, the only way to get contracts, let's say in places like Nigeria, energy contracts, is by bribing the government. That's so the government is completely corrupt. The only way you get any contract, and, uh, and there was many cases of Halliburton, this guy was hired by Halliburton because he had connections in Nigeria. Someone that I met here in Houston, he was on trial. Um, based on this anti-corruption act, and now it's it, it wasn't always illegal. That's the way you do business, even today. So uh, unfortunately, that's why America, uh, American companies have a certain handicap because they can't bribe those companies now because of the federal law, and that's the way the system works, and it still works in many of these countries. Okay, so one should remind people of the kingdoms in Europe, and particularly our ruler, the Tsar. So he's, he, this guy, was living in Russia. He's saying. In, under the Tsar and his predecessors and the kings of England who spread their influence over many lands in order that people should have confidence in, their, in the security of their body and money. So he's saying that the Tsar and the English government at the time was great. They took over all this land in order to instill justice and order. The wealthy do not have to hide themselves so that others will not loot or kill them. On all of this, the presence of looting and killing hinges the rulings of informing the laws of Moses and slandering in the Malshin, as you said, the word Malshinim, in the Talmud and later authorities, as I will explain. And these rules apply only to one who informs another to bandits and so endangers that person's money and life, as these bandits chase after the person's body and money, and thus one may use deadly force to save oneself. But he's saying, if you live under our beautiful czar, and if you live under the English government at the time, um, in English colony, so then you, this, of course, is not applicable, because, of course, they are just government. So uh, the fact that he's saying the czar is just government, not exactly sure. Might have been self-censoring here, because um, he had to write that, or else he would be <laughs> wouldn't be doing so well, in Siberia. Um, but the point is, so so. But this is opinion number one, um, which many contemporary authorities use as saying that when you're dealing with a just government, so all these laws are no longer applicable. These are only applicable to the unjust, bandit governments, corrupt governments of the past. Okay, so that's opinion number one. So I mean, today, if it, yeah, that's what he says of old. Starts with saying, in times of old, in places far away. He says, even today in Africa you find some. Yeah, okay. So, but the point being is, so today, of course, in America, you know, if you apply this opinion, so there's no question. Just because the guy happens to be Jewish who's committing the fraud, you have the same obligation to report him as any other person um, to, and you have an obligation to report him. There's no, this this whole law of what we call the law of Messira is, is no longer applicable, according to this opinion, and according to other, many other contemporary authorities. Okay, so that's number one. Now, second one is the opposite extreme, which is very interesting. This is written by a contemporary Israeli scholar. I don't know if he's not still longer alive. His name is Rabbi Ezra Batsri. So he has another issue. He says, you're right. I agree that the system might be just. Okay, so you have a just justice system, maybe. Or you have a, by the way, I mean, even that, I mean, many times you do. Can't find corrupt judges in, in certain counties, as we know. Um, so there is a problem, even though you might have Technically, the system is just, but what happens when you have, you know, you have a corrupt judge in this particular case or, or county? Okay, what do you do then? So that's an interesting question. But the, the the issue is, his issue is, you might the government might be just, and we have just laws on the books, and the system is just. The justice system might be just, but as we know, anyone seen uh, any good prison movies? 
knows uh, that that uh, there's in our, our prison system, especially the blue collar. I'm not talking about the country club prisons, where you go for many white collar crimes. But if you're going to a real prison um, in West Texas, um, there's going to be problems. You can't. You're not supposed to bend over in the shower, pick up the soap, right? So, uh, right. So the issue becomes the system might be just, but the question is: is the punishment? Oh, so, the, so they're giving him whatever it is, three years incarceration or five years. Questions: What happens to that person in prison? If he's going to be gang raped, or he or she, or and and he's going to be knifed and uh, the sharpened toothbrushes, and a lot of other things that take place in prison. If you trust the movies, right? So the so the question then becomes: Is that just? So right, maybe he should be incarcerated, but he doesn't deserve to be knifed and be gang raped and all the other things that might happen. So you have another issue here. So the system might be just. But the the uh, consequences of putting him through the system, at the end of the day, he's going to get many things that he doesn't deserve. Okay, so so therefore he wants to make the argument that it's still applicable. The fact that you're informing on this person, so you're right, it's a great country we live in. But what happens to him in, in this prison is not controllable, and and nice things don't happen in prison. So that's, that's his issue. So he says like this. He says, Do not be surprised by the rules of this chapter, meaning the laws of, the, he's referring to the chapter in the Code of Jewish Law, discussing the laws of informants. And number two, and think they're all inapplicable nowadays. Since governments are enlightened and, and democratic, a beacon for people to travel, this should be thought true of only by the very naive. As even in democracies, in truth, when there is a matter that involves the government, continues on the back page, the matter is treated as out of normal protocol, as happens when matters relate to security of the state. All rules of informing are applicable, even currently, he says. Anyone who knows and understands and sees not only what is externally visible, what previously was, will see that the only the external appearance has changed, but the central characteristic of government has not changed. So he's going a little more extreme. He says, even if they bring all matters to court, it's clear that through interrogation and, to, and the police, government can destroy people, and in many places they do, in fact, destroy people. Okay, so, so um, she lives in Israel, maybe that's a reflection of the Israeli system. Um, I don't know, but, he, but uh, basically what, he, what he's saying is you could never really um, have it fully, you know, it's even the most um, just system, there's always corruption involved, and always, uh, when it comes to prison, there's never a just prison system. Okay, so meaning this is another, I think part of the point there is, everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy. Everyone see the movie uh, Midnight Express? Have you ever seen Midnight Express? Yeah. What? Midnight Express? Have you seen Midnight Express? Yeah. No, but we, <laughs> still, we still have cases so of paper of, you know, corrupt prosecution or something in that order. I mean, that happened. Well, that's his point. So, so you have to know. I mean, listen, there's certain parts. I mean, I don't know if you saw following recently in the news, there was a David Dow. You see what they did? I mean, it's unbelievable. So, I mean, I might, without getting into the whole details of the story, a Jewish lawyer here in town, they, they disbarred him. They, they didn't renew his license for a year because basically they didn't like him because he was, uh, he was very anti the death penalty in Texas. And he would always be appealing all the cases. So they like, found some like, stupid technicality and basically said, we're not renewing your license as an attorney. This guy's like, basically risked, gave up his whole life to save people, innocent people on death row. Not that I agree with many of his views. Um, um, I don't agree with many of his views. I had him speak in many of my classes, but he, he's a, he means well. The guy he's trying to save these people or innocent people, but they just. I, mean, that's I just think a, what they did was they uh, are not allowing him to appear in that uh, court. No, they did not renew his law license. Really? Yeah, that's what I read. Oh, I remember correctly. 
I'm saying so there is and, and if you speak to people obviously in, in the family court system there's a lot there is a lot of corruption judges are are many times get a, you know they they have their um, lackeys or you know their lawyers who they uh, their pet lawyers I mean so there's a lot of listen we have a great system compared to many other countries in the right. question right. of course there is corruption like in, I think in, in every system has there's going to be some corruption. Now again, yeah, I don't know how you where you draw the line. Some corruption does that mean the whole system is corrupt? I mean, obviously not. So how to, exactly where you draw the line? I don't know. But the question, what his point is, is don't think that just because you live in this beautiful country, that uh, means everything's fine and dandy. There is corruption in the system. Again, so that does that mean you should never inform someone? I just want to make it clear. And this is something we, we mentioned last time. Of course, when you're talking about, let's say, a child molester or anything like that, there's no question. You're obligated. Every rabbi today, I don't know, every rabbi, but 98% of rabbis will tell you you have to go to the police and immediately you have to report if something like that is happening, whether it's in a school, synagogue, or in the community. That needs, that's obligatory to report. Um, halachically, I'm talking about. And legally, if you're not a mandatory reporter, you don't have to report. But we're saying, according to Allah, there's no question if you can save someone's life. And I think there's, I think everyone would agree that if a child, uh, especially when dealing with children, child abuse or sexual abuse literally can ruin people's lives. Psychologically, people commit suicide, many of these children. So there's no question that's considered saving a life, and you have to do everything possible to report that. Um, and maybe even if it means losing your job in some cases, especially if it's in a school setting. But we're talking about cases, again, sticking to monetary cases, um, where it's a question of fraud or someone stealing, that's where we're discussing this. So so another thing to keep in mind here, which is that the halachic, let's say punishment for fraud, we view in a lot in Jewish law, stealing only is considered a tort. That means there's no there's no concept of incarceration for someone who stole. It's you have to pay back, you have to make monetary uh, um, remediation for what you did. Okay? So you might have to pay more, you find you there's a concept of finding you, but there's no concept of incarceration. So that in itself, and that's some of the other opinions here, is problematic because halachically, um, if someone stole something, he, sh- he shouldn't be going to jail. The system, the, our American system, our Western law might incarcerate the person. So that becomes the question. How do you drive, meaning maybe the problem with informing is, you're right, even if it's just government, but what, they're, they're, what they consider punishment in halacha is not just. So that's another issue that comes up. Again, when it comes to monetary payment, so that's, I believe, the second. This is what number three is saying. So far, we have um, opinion number one is saying that this whole law is no, all these laws are no longer applicable. Laws of informant are no longer applicable today. Second opinion is saying no, they, they, you can't be so naive and think that uh, all the systems are just, especially what takes place in prison. There is no just prison, so to speak, so to speak. And number three is saying informing is permitted when Jewish law recognizes secular law as valid. So as we know, we discussed, there's a concept we discussed many times, which is dina de machuta dina. And we, once we're living in a country, we accept, halacha accepts the laws of those countries, as long as they don't contradict um, halacha. Okay, so if, if the laws of the country are saying this guy goes to prison for fraud, whatever the fraud is, tax fraud or whatever it is, so then we have to keep those laws. Therefore, he says, as long as those laws are not contradicting halacha, then you can inform on the, on the person. Okay, if the law if the law was saying, you know, let's say you would have to do something against Jewish law, um, if he was punished by the government, I don't know, let's say whatever the case might be, um, you know, you, you can't keep kosher in prison, something like that, which by the way, in American prisons, you, you're allowed to. They have to provide you with your religious, um, whatever you request. 
So the question, that, that becomes a different issue. But as long as we accept this concept that the laws of the land are just, okay, even including incarceration, so then he's saying, then you, then you can inform because it, it jives with the Jewish law, so to speak. Okay, that's number three. And what's interesting is I found this response of Ramosha Feinstein in number four. There's two, two responses, two fascinating responses he has. She does not seem to agree with the concept that the laws no longer apply which is interesting, as most contemporary authorities do. Because he says like this, says, um, number four, he says, I received your letter with regard to an evildoer. This is his writing back response. Um, the ra- rabbi wrote him this question. In regard to an evildoer who came into a kosher factory and forged the kosher symbol, placed it in non-kosher items, which he sold to Jews as kosher. Okay, so this was the case. So, so he had a case of forgery, fraud, where this guy was selling items as kosher, which weren't kosher to Jewish consumers. The question is, can one inform on him to the secular authorities who will judge him severely with either a fine or prison? Or must the rabbis judge him accordingly according to Jewish law? So Rabbi Feinstein says, in my opinion, one may not turn the matter over to the secular authorities. In addition, since it is certain that the secular authorities, because of, because of this prohibition of informing, he says, in addition, since it is certain that the secular authorities will um, adjudicate the matter through incarceration or a fine inconsistent with Jewish law, one must be fearful of the prohibition of informing as it is prohibited to inform a Jew to the secular authority. So he's still going with the law, whether through a danger to his body or his money, even if he be a sinner. Okay, so just because the guy's an idiot and he's a fraudster, saying that still doesn't give you a right, for most fans in saying to report him to the government, where they're going to do something more severe than halacha would allow. So he's saying incarceration is not something, listen, he, he's an idiot, yes, he put kosher symbols on something he shouldn't. And he frauded people, and he said it was kosher, and he's an idiot. And he's a sinner. But that doesn't give us a right. Allah would say he still doesn't, can't incarcerate him. You have to punish him, whatever the case may be. Whatever the punishment may be, but you can't incarcerate him for that, and therefore he says you can't inform him to the government. So he's going, he's contradicting number three. Not contradicting, he's of a different opinion, yes. This is an opinion <laughs> number four. A contradictory opinion. Contradic- yes, no, it's a contradictory no, opinion. But he's not, he's allowed to contradict it. I mean, this but is. But number three, I mean, right. use example of, since in, in, in tort cases we do not imprison, all right, in Jewish law, all right, but in number three, where he's saying that's okay to do it, that's works up in the secular Right, okay. right, so that's important. Meaning in number three, by the way, I don't know if I said this, he, in, a, in the response of itself, he, just, he says that he views informing as any type of tort. So tort is. <laughs> Meaning, because there is an issue, by the way, let's say I inform and the government now comes and takes away more money than they should. So am I liable to you for that money that the government now took? They find you a million dollars. Your company was committing fraud. I informed on you to the, to the government. And now the government not only took back the money, but they, they find you for a million dollars. So now who's liable? Am I, well, do you look at me as the informer? Maybe it's liable to you for that money. Yeah. Because I caused the government to, to take that money, and luckily they have no right to take that money. So how does that work? So normally, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just meaning normally if I cause you a loss, so I have to, I'm liable for that loss. Yeah. So in this case, the fact that I went and informed the government, now they find you a million dollars above and beyond what you stole from them. So maybe I should be liable for that loss. Me as the informer. But didn't this happen a couple of years ago in Iowa, where a kosher large meat was 
doing the wrong kosher label or something like that in the Department of Agriculture? No, that was something else. They, were, they hired uh, miners, immigrants, illegals, and miners. They had like 150. Um, yeah, they were just, that was an immigration thing. By the way, that's a classical example. I just want to tell you, that's, that is a great example, that, that case of this guy basically, he did, there were three violent, I mean, he was charged with each miner he hired was another violation. But basically, this guy's whole town was illegal immigrants. He was in somewhere in Iowa. Postville. Postville, Post Iowa. Um, which basically, this guy changed the whole town, the economy. He was hiring these illegal families, um, giving them employment, helping these poor people who came over the border. Literally hundreds of them. And then, I don't know who went and informed, whoever went and informed, but basically this whole town was destroyed. The economy of the town was destroyed. All these illegals lost their job. He was violating the law, there's no question. The guy got 27 years in prison um, because every miner he was he was uh, counted he, he was charged separately for every miner that he had he, was, he claimed there were people there were 15 year olds working there 16 year olds and he had no right you know he, so he was charged separately so it was 27 years by the way there's every um, I don't know if you saw there was petitions every attorney general for the past uh, I think nine attorney generals signed a letter saying that his punishment was too severe and there was by the way I mean I, again I don't, I don't know facts of the case Please, I don't want to say, but you can do the research. I mean, the, the judge, there was some issue with the, it was a woman judge who had a connection to the, to the company. There was some uh, interesting stuff going on there. But whatever the case was, the point is, that's a classical example where, listen, this guy, listen, he hired, I'm not saying he violated the law. Um, he hired 27. He also, by the way, there was different. There was, as I mean, there was, if I remember, some bank fraud also on his loan application. He, he stated, I think, the company's value a little higher get some loans, which is also, I think, it's a federal, a federal offense. So he also, you know, he, he inflated his, the company value to get bank loans. That was another charge. So that's a, that was another thing he did wrong, which, and he's guilty, no question. I'm saying that's a classical example. He got 27 years in prison for, you know, halakhically, I mean, what he did wrong. He didn't do, I mean, he didn't steal any money. He didn't do it. He just, you know, hired, hired illegals and miners. Basically, and his and his bank fraud is illegal, no question. He should have gone to trial, and but the question is, it might be a classical case where he was. So, so as an yeah. observation, isn't what you're saying, by extension, uh, that Jewish law should prevail, and <coughs> and Jews no. should follow that? Isn't I'm that not saying that. That's what we find. Isn't saying. that an argument? Okay, yeah. you're not. They, he is. Um, that people mount in this country about the dangers of Sharia law. Um, By extension, I'm that's not sort so of the, familiar with it. But it, 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 the analogy, Sharia, Sharia. Or the, Islam, the analogy Muslim is that, that so you should follow your religious law over secular law. Right. right. Yes. Which, which, which well, to a Muslim, it's true. Yes, so 100%. I, I, first of all, your argument is 100%. Valid. That doesn't mean I agree. Mean. David is, has a very valid point. How is halacha different than Sharia law? And I'm not so sure. You're right. I'm not so sure it's so different. To this commentary. No, the application of it. The key difference is we're not trying to impose our law on, on everyone else. That's the key difference. Meaning um, Sharia is saying, listen, the whole world should keep these laws. That, that, that's an exaggeration. No, no, that's, that, what that, that's, a, that's an exaggeration of the argument that's made against the imposition that we have to fear Sharia law because it's going to become the predominant law and people are going to follow it. Well, by oh. extension... They're trying to make it the predominant law. We're not. We're saying within again. our community. Well, wait, wait, that's not. a key difference. But you're right. It's a valid... It's, it's just... I agree. I look at it is, uh, it's not so... All right. 
and I don't know the whole argument of, of how the Muslims were trying to apply it, okay? But in the sense of, I think Oklahoma had a big stick mm -hmm. about that, right? So in Jewish law, we're saying, mm -hmm. all right, well, I don't want to say Jewish law. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. But we're saying, all right, if we have a civil case among Jews, deal with it with the base in and avoid civil law if you can. All right? But we're not saying the civil law, if it does go to a civil law court, to use Jewish law as your basis for the punishment. Whereas I think the Sharia law was trying to do it from that standpoint. I'm actually arguing the other side, that there's fear-mongering yeah. Not by Jews or Muslims. There's fear mongering by people who are arguing yeah. we, yeah. the community, need to be scared that Sharia law is going to be the law of the land. And that's analogous to, you know, an argument that is that Jews should follow halakhic law and Muslims are going to be following Sharia law. No, but I think we're out of time, so I'm just going to finish. Use that as a, as a, as a substitute for civil law. Well, I think this is the substitute right here, is that Jews shouldn't go if we don't go to civil law first. Well, that's the argument put in time? Yeah, and pass me. That is the argument in um, here. In yeah, so, so I, first of all, David, he does this vowed on. I'll just tell you, a few weeks ago I gave, I gave part of this class um, to, uh, in a, in, in to a group of lawyers. I had an attorney, uh, a professor actually speak, um, was a professor of constitutional law, he, so he was, he and he spoke about how this is a problem. I have also beef, the ADL, many of the liberal Jewish organizations are fighting um, against um, against um, Sharia. This, first of all, it's interesting there, for example, the, the one of the things, not what he quoted, but the uh, issue was, you know, it's meaning when you're fighting against Sharia law, in a certain sense, it could end up coming back and harming us. Because uh, we're going to have, we, so, so his example was, the ADL filed a brief against, oh, that was the, actually the Hobby Lobby. The ADL filed a brief pro-government against the Hobby Lobby, and it was a question of funding abortions, okay, with Obamacare, that Obamacare mm -hmm. requires Hobby Lobby to pay for their employees' abortions, which we spoke about here. So he, his, he, he said he spoke, he met with the ADL and their attorney and said, you realize by filing this brief, when the government now says, let's say, for example, that you have to start stunning animals before shechita, which is against halacha, so you're going to have to agree with the government in that case too. Once, because you're going to, you can't have your cake and eat it. Mm -hmm. if we're going to fight. If we're going to say that the government has a right to decide and uh, override personal people's religious freedoms, their personal religious freedoms. So then, that's going to be applicable. It's going to come back to haunt us. So I think he told us to the ADL, and the ADL said yes. So right. This would be even. This would be part of. Um, this the argument raging today about the law that got passed in Indiana on denying what is it that uh, people no. are you you flower, flower shops, flower shops may deny services based on religious freedom. based on the sexual owner's religion. religious freedom if he wants to based on someone's sexual orientation because that's yep. right for anything general which you know is analogous to saying that's a state's rights issue which is analogous to saying. So therefore, if the state of Mississippi wants to say, I don't want to serve you because you're black, because my religion provides for segregation, then that's all okay. 
That's really right. what the Indiana law right. says. So this is, right. Yeah. So we, we did that. But yeah, that's a religious. Weeks. That's a religious argument yes. that the, yes. you know. If, so that, so well, it's, it's a complicated issue. Well, like, okay, I need to finish. Okay, that's we're getting off the topic. I just want to finish the last paragraph. Okay, this is very important. Another fascinating response that Rabbi Feinstein had was someone asked him a IRS auditor said, what do I do, am I allowed to become an IRS auditor as an observant Jew if I know I'm going to have cases of religious Jews that are cheating on the taxes and, and, and I have to report them. So what happens then? So he, interesting, in this case he permits it. He says, it seems logical to me that since anyone who examines tax returns will encounter fraud, that's part of it, and even if he declines the job, others will take the job. So listen, just, if you're not the auditor, so you're going to say, I'm going to refuse this case because this is another fellow Jew, I'm not going to take this, this particular file. He says, so this is going to pass on to the next auditor. He might be more stringent with the guy. Mm -hmm. I discovered the fraud. One sees from this that one who commits the fraud suffers no loss, meaning you're not causing him any more loss by the fact that you're the auditor. He says, you're, he, this guy is, either way, if someone else audits him, it's, it's, first of all, today, I think it's all computers anyway. Uh, right. So it's irrelevant. But the point is, um, in, in, back in the day, when people actually looked at the file, so he says, so, so if you don't take the job, the other guy's going to take it. And therefore, he says, there's no prohibition. You can be an IRS auditor, and you can audit uh, fellow Jews and report them without a problem. Okay, so if anyone's thinking of that uh, going into that career... <laughs> don't bother. <laughs> you can't, you may. Actually, I told you, I always tell the story where I had a friend of mine who... He, he was very antisocial, a rabbi. So people, you come over to him, you like, you know, make conversations. So you say, what do you do for a living? So he said, an IRS auditor. So I know he's ended the conversation. <laughs> and you want to end the conversation, he's like, you know, what do you do for an IRS auditor? Nice to meet you. Take you have been listening to the mp3 project from the jewish ethic institute for a complete selection of our lectures please visit our website at j-ethics.org shalom